Welcome to This is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. We work at the intersection of race, economy, political power, gender, and the structures of oppression at work within us individually, within our organization, and within the community. We are working towards building people's control of the government, building community control of the economy, expanding the public sphere, and creating structural racial equity. In today's program, we're going to listen back to more excerpts from programs from 2021. In our first segment, Reverend Susan Sneed, an MCU organizer, Jim Sajeda, a former president of MCU, and Sean Hadley, manager of public affairs for the Metropolitan St. Louis Sewer District, talk about the work in 2013 to bring about a community benefit agreement with the Metropolitan Sewer District for equitable hiring and outsourcing. Well, I think what initially started it was the fact that the EPA was mandating that um, MSD was going to have to engage in this really huge project of getting the stormwater, the rainwater out of the sewer water to separate it because there were a lot of places in the system where it mingled together and it caused a lot of problems on people's personal property. Um, And it was going to be a really huge project. And we knew that. And we also wanted to be sure that there was some equity in hiring, whether it was hiring workforce or hiring small businesses. Uh, We had already been engaged with the Missouri Department of Transportation in an agreement around making sure that there were goals set around uh, gender and ethnicity and that we were making sure that training was being incentivized. Uh, And it ended up being called the Missouri model in transportation circles. And we felt like this is exactly what was needed with the MSD project. It was gonna cover $5 billion and be a 20 year long project. And we wanted to be sure that there was equity across the board, um, that the community was a full partner in this. Um, And a piece of that also was MSD did a diversity study so that they could better understand what those equity, equitable numbers were were going to need to look like. Um, And it turned out that they were very low on on that side in the beginning. And so it began this year's long process of increasing the diversity within that this larger project. One of the things that that was felt by um, the uh, members of the Community Benefits Agreement Partnership was that um, minority taxpayers are a big part of the taxpayers for MSD and um, should have a uh, basically a ratio of um, the people who are working on and for MSD um, be represented uh, in terms of their community. You know, we uh, went in with the disparity study that we did and found that we, you know, were lacking in, in minority participation. That's kind of one of the, one of the where the when Reverend Snee was referring to the diversity study, the, the disparity studies were um, this this uh, pretty much developed from, and we saw that we needed to have more minority participation, and that's something that's been increased over time. And actually, we're in we're in a really good position probably better than most in the uh, region as far as our participation goes. When the CBA um, initiative began, um, it was rather contentious because I think um, MSD 
uh, really felt it was doing a good job, but there wasn't a whole lot of data that um, was available from them that would really reflect what they said was going on. Over over time, um, I think things really improved in terms of, uh, I think, MSD seeing the pluses of a community benefits agreement partnership, but initially it was pretty contentious. I think um, the uh, unions, uh, Association of General Contractors, were suspicious and not really um, feeling really good about having MCU and the other organizations involved pushing for um, equity and for more um, minorities to be involved in construction. I think we had a great team. I think one of the things that really worked is we had the NAACP as a partner. We had the um, Coalition of Black Trade Unionists as a partner on the team. Um, MOCAN um, also was a partner. So we had a lot of strong uh, people that were involved in wanting to see this um, you know, be fruitful and beneficial. And so what began as somewhat contentious and, and onerous actually uh, over a long period of time developed into a very positive thing. MSD did a fantastic job in terms of having um, data readily available. It did. I, and I think a lot of the, the contract, individual contractors and the unions and, and MSD all felt like they were already kind of stepping up. But then as the numbers began to roll in, they realized there was a lot more they could do to the point that uh, MSD, like you said, they did a lot. They mm-hmm. completely overhauled their diversity department going yep. from one person to, I think there's like 12 people there now, really stepped up to make sure that they were hitting the marks and that they were doing. One of the things that they did that was really impressive was uh, what they call unbundling a project, Yep, which was really important for small contractors. Um, normally, a big project might go to one big contractor who would then break it down to other subcontractors And there was never going to be that guarantee that it might be a minority contractor or a woman-owned contractor. So what MSD did was break those bigger jobs down into a lot of smaller jobs that would allow smaller contractors to bid on those jobs in the beginning and not have to go through a a larger contractor. So that Uh is real. And then you get smaller businesses who can begin to establish their own track record and that helps overall in the whole community. That's a ripple effect in the whole community. Um, you have smaller businesses able to build a track record that's going to carry them through other projects and other places. In our second section, we hear from Latricia Gandy, an organizer with MCU's Juvenile Justice Task Force, and Evangelist Bethany johnson Jeffois, Associate Pastor of Monument of Faith Church of God in Christ and President and Chief Executive Officer of the Deaconess Foundation. Through the summer and fall of 2021, MCU partnered with Churches and Jennings to talk with residents about what their community needed. After door-to-door canvassing and follow-up phone calls, the citizens were invited to a public meeting to voice their concerns to elected officials in the city. This journey all started on June 19th of 2021. So on June 19th, MCU, along with Monument of Faith, will be joining together collectively, getting into the community. Um, and our hopes are to get the community and the churches all gathered 
around June 19th and also around faith, um, building communities, impacted people, and just coming through to get the community back engaged together um, and get the resources that the families need into the community. So why is MCU hosting this event and, and why in this region at Monument of Faith Church? Some things we do with breaking the school to prison pipeline is look at data of where children are coming from and how they're coming into the detention center. Um, and Jenny's 63, the zip code of 63136, which is Jenny's, some of Jenny's, is that high impact zip code where our children are being detained into the juvenile detention center. The data that we share um, comes from actually the St. Louis County Courts. Um, so I have relationships with some of the county court officials and we ask for the data, like, where are the children coming from? The 23 children in juvenile detention in the county, where are they coming from? And so there's a map that they provide us with um, that shows the different zip codes. And 63136 zip code was the number one zip code of where those children are coming from. Now this report is shared. It's not, it's not something that's sealed. You can pull up the report online. You can see the data. You can see the mapping. But 63136 was that number one impacted zip code where the children were funneled through the system. So we asked the question, what's going on in the community? And how can we get involved and organize in that community to figure out what we can do better? for the children, the youth, and the families. So with that being said, um, I was introduced to Pastor Bethany of Monument of Faith, and we had a um, kind of a meeting around, you know, I shared the data with her and she shared some data with us uh, as well as the councilwoman. And there's definitely some work that we need to do in Jennings um, and organize around. But we start there with the data. Monument of Faith has been in the Jennings community for 50 years through my dad's founding ministry. However, uh, the challenge that sometimes churches can have is that they stay within four walls and their sole mission is to preach the gospel. Reminding men of faith believes that to be true and the preaching of the gospel or the embracing of community is just as much a part of our role. So yes, we think about the spirit, but we now need to really think deeply about democracy being truly deeply participatory. And these building up relationships with Jennings leaders, uh, with our elected officials, and definitely with MCU being so critically important right now, given what we know is happening uh, in, in North County, in our community in St. Louis, is just critical. So this is part of our yes to God and our evangelical mandate. I would say that the reason why the data and the, just the positioning was so critical is because we were looking and we are discerning the Kairos time, right? It's a, it's a phrase that faith leaders know and you can go in so many different directions of your own accord you can clothe people feed people but we were looking for what we understand even through the ferguson commission's work on which i was blessed to help to lead that policy change structural issues right the social and structural determinants of health my day job is in well-being and when we looked at that data yes we talk about spiritual and emotional well-being this is an inhibitor of that and so it really helped me to go, oh, God, you want me to prioritize making sure that community voice, community vote, participation, love that looks like action. There's a quote that I use. I didn't coin it, but it says, do not ask the Lord to guide your steps if you're not willing to move your feet. 
And so this for us gave us how to move the feet. I mean, some, many times I found that churches are reticent to move, one, because they don't have the internal capacity to offer to Latricia something, right? When you're a smaller congregation, you're like, we don't have enough. We're just trying to, you know, feed our flock. Well, then God gives us capacity in our willingness that he makes the little much. So once we got over that hump of being intimidated by, we've never done it before and we're too small, you know, and God was like, yeah, you sound like that preacher that was like, I'm too young and I stutter, but I'm going to be with you, right? And so as soon as our faith elevated to say, perhaps what God is teaching us is to trust him and what we don't know, because this is his work. It's not about our capacity. And then MCU says to us, we will take you through training. We will show you the data. We will show you who uh, are, are not part of our democracy as related to voting. And in the training, you'll build confidence with us. And then we'll go out together and we'll build relationship with community together. And that took down our anxiety of perfection and, oh, there's not enough, to really relying on this partnership, relying on the data, and relying on the spirit of God. All three go together to really start creating movement. I also just want to say, I am not a neighbor in Jennings. And so I am very conscious to be humble about the fact that we, MCU nor Monument, will come into Jennings with some, I have a vision and a plan. That is colonization manifesting again. So we've been very thoughtful about making sure that Mayor Austin, who is a very powerful black woman, private PS, there's a theme of black women going on. Okay, just saying, just saying. Um, and we're looking at, you know, our uh, representative Clower and other local elected officials where we ask the question, hey, as we enter in with this idea and with this motivation, we have to be grounded in the neighbors and neighborhoods. So the first thing we did is we picked up trash with neighbors. I didn't have a logo on. I didn't have a T-shirt that said Monument. I just showed up on a Saturday, put on bug spray and got to picking up trash. And in doing so. One of the neighbors across the street was like, sister, here's gloves. Looks like you might need more of that. Wait, where, where are you at? Oh, you're that church up the street. I'm coming on Sunday. Let me tell you four more things happening. And that was just from serving for, to serve, right? I'm not even looking for fish at this moment. I'm looking to provide presence. And so I want to be thoughtful about this approach, which is why, last thing I'll say on this is, I don't want to spend a lot of like excited cheerleader energy that is focused wrong, right? We can get excited, but we need to be humble to make sure that we are not getting ahead of God nor getting ahead of God's people in neighborhood. I honor that, and I want to do that well in life. After over a decade of work, a constitutional amendment overwhelmingly approved by voters, and a court battle against our own state government, Medicaid expansion was finally implemented in Missouri in 2021. To recap the road to implementation, we talked with Richard Von Glan of Missouri Jobs with Justice and Sidney D. Watson, the Bruce and Jane Roberts Professor of Law Director at the Center of Health Law Studies at St. Louis University School of Law. Medicaid expansion is um, an opportunity to close a coverage gap. Missouri has a situation um, from a ruling of the Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court on the Affordable Care Act, um, we have we had some of the lowest eligibility for Medicaid in the country, and then the Affordable Care Act set up a situation in which you could get subsidies to buy 
insurance on the marketplace beginning at 100% of the federal poverty level. The ACA was designed so that Medicaid would cover everybody below that. But when the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the Affordable Care Act, it ruled that states could but did not have to expand their Medicaid population and that the federal government would pay for that expanded coverage, but the the state still had to make that decision. Um, Missouri for the Missouri legislature for 10 years um, has resisted doing that. So in Missouri, you had a situation where um, you could make too much money to qualify for Medicaid, um, but not enough money to qualify for the subsidies in the Affordable Care Act. And there are a couple of nuances in that, depending on your your situation, if you were pregnant or if you had a disability. But um, it created a gap where uh, an estimated over a quarter million Missourians were um, unable to get health insurance. It was a gap created by the refusal of the legislature to fully implement the Affordable Care Act and a gap that is now thankfully coming to a close. And to follow up on that, it means that for the first time now, a single person earning up to about $18,000 a year, a family of three earning up to $30,000 a year will be able to get Medicaid coverage. And those are adults between 19 and 64. Those are the folks we talk of as being in the gap who can now get coverage. So let's turn to what happened uh, last week in the Missouri Supreme Court. Uh, What did they rule and why did they rule the way they did? Well, first it was a unanimous ruling. It is what is called a per curiam decision, which means it is not one judge writing an opinion that other judges decide whether to sign on to. It is an opinion of the court as a whole. These are unusual that we see that kind of unanimity uh, on a court. So it is an important statement that one, the ballot initiative, the constitutional amendment is legal, is constitutional, is the law of the land and that the appropriations bill that the legislature passed this week is sufficient authority to to fund it. Uh, There are no problems. Time to move forward uh, and to begin enrolling people in Medicaid. So uh, you mentioned a little bit before some of the extra benefits, economic benefits that Missouri is going to see. Let's just go ahead and, and, and go through those again. What, what is this going to mean for the state as a whole, as opposed to just helping individuals? Well, if we're talking about um, state revenue, um, one, one thing we know from the experience in other states is it stay, saves state tax dollars that are being spent on uh, state-funded programs now. Uh, it also creates jobs. Some of those jobs are in healthcare, whether it's hiring nurses and new doctors and new physical therapists, but also uh, construction workers when we expand clinics uh, to treat the 275,000 newly insured people we expect uh, through Medicaid. Uh, So there's a ripple effect in terms of improving the economy. It helps stabilize rural hospitals. Uh, We've had a number of rural hospitals close over the last decade, um, and 
part of the impact of Medicaid expansion is proportionately, we will see more folks, more benefit in rural counties uh, of the state and see money to support those rural hospitals, which is really important in rural clinics. Um, so that's some of the benefit, some of the money benefit. Um, there's also a benefit uh, to health access. People with Medicaid coverage are able to see the doctor, get preventive screenings, find out if they've got high blood pressure, get the, the medication they need. And there are over 400 studies, many uh, that have tracked Medicaid expansion in other states um, that, that show that this happens. And now that Medicaid expansion has had a few years in other states, we see population health improvements, um, that people are able to get those prescription drugs and take care of those hip replacements. And they're actually healthier now. They're able to go to work. They're able to keep work. It's, you know, it's, it's a win-win, uh, whether we're talking the economics, the public health, the personal health. In our final segment, we talked with Dr. Charlotte E.J., Director of Pupil Personnel and Diversity for the Parkway School District, and Barbara Johnson, an organizer with the MCU Education Task Force, about equity and diversity in public school education and the teaching of the full truth about America's history of racism. We know that critical race theory was was um, uh, developed in the 70s. It was used in mainly in law schools and also um, higher education. It was part of that critical thinking. Mm -hmm. I don't know of any schools in the area that's teaching, quote unquote, critical race theory, because it would be very difficult to teach that K through 12. However, what concerns me is that it's used as the boogeyman. What it's boiled down to is that they've taken the concept of critical race theory, but they take that and they say, well, that is the same as equity and inclusion. And it's not. It's not the same. We have to make sure that this state does not stop us from doing what we need to do to make sure sure kids feel as if they are valued. We have 85%, 90% or higher white teachers teaching 50% or 45% of the students who are from other ethnic groups. And so that is going to be a negative all on its own. Kids don't know who they are. They're not feeling as if they are um, appreciated or valued or understood. So then you're going to have the same thing that's going on, that's been going on for generations. And when we talk about socialization, how we were socialized, that's that stuff has been passed on from generation to generation to generation. Absolutely. The only way we're going to take that path to liberation and not repeat the cycle of this racism uh, is we talk about our true history. I think about the Holocaust and our Jewish sisters and brothers. The one thing that they did was to say, never forget. We will never forget. And they are still planning, even after the last Holocaust survivor is alive, they will have that history continue to pass on. Why would they want to do that? So you never repeat history, especially if it's negative. You don't repeat it again. In this country, we just kind of cover, cover them up. We don't want to talk about slavery. 
I'd like to just give this proverb. Uh, it's an African proverb, and it sort of addresses this. And it says, until the story of the hunt is told by the lion, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. Exactly. That has been the issue. The story has never been told in America. The true story has never been told. And our children are not responsible. Our students are not responsible for what happened. But as citizens, they are responsible. All students are responsible for ensuring that this never happens again. But if they don't know the story of their actual lion, how then will they be able to keep that from happening again? And that's because the stories have been have tried to be told. The stories yeah. have been deliberately suppressed and oppressed and hidden. And it's taking people like us, MCU and educators like yourself to constantly dig for the stories to put them out there. There was a time when I was growing up and go to the library, I didn't see any books about African-Americans and our true history. Now they're everywhere because we have, we the people that are in this fight to do the right things, to expose the right history of all of us, not just us as African-Americans, but Asian-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, Latina, all, all of our cultures have a story that has been hidden by the powers of this country. I think that's why it's really important for the school board on down, the superintendent, the principals, and and the teachers, that hierarchy on down, be strong in what they know and be able to deal with that as a unit when it comes at them. You have to be able to put up a strong front of what you know as an educator and what you're doing in your system from the top down. So I think that's really critical. And that way, teachers in the classroom won't feel that vulnerability if a parent comes to them because they know they, they, they have someone has their back in what they're doing. Thank you for taking a look back at more of our discussions from 2021. If you are ready to join us in the work for justice in the St. Louis area, contact us at 314-367-3484 or office at mcustl.com. You can learn more about and contribute to Metropolitan Congregations United on our website, mcustlewis.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening.